Man, I am, I'm in the zone this morning, feeling good. Uh, welcome to Home Community Church Lower Town. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town, and I also am on staff with Hope. Uh, we are now, oh, I, welcome, and thanks for being here. It's great to see you. Uh, we are now in, uh, oh, I can also do this. Uh, if you're new or visiting, bathrooms are through these doors. It kind of feels counterintuitive, but bathrooms are back through those doors and through the lobby. Uh, you'll find them in the hallway. Um, and then, uh, what else? Oh yeah, week four. We're in week four of Hosea. Minor prophet. Okay, so it's kind of weird. We, we're reading a minor prophet, Old Testament, kind of small book. One that when you're trying to um, race your friends to see who can find the page the fastest, this one would be a tricky one, but... Uh, we're in Hosea. This is the fourth week now. We're all the way into chapter two. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, if if you got a handout, I had handouts there. If you got a handout um, on the back side, you'll see ways to get connected, and you can actually just take your phone and and hold the camera over these little QR codes, and it'll open a link to a website. And there's different ways to get connected. One is just creating an account on MyHopeCC. Uh, I need to get on my small group to do that. The other one is to sign up for Brian's weekly newsletter that comes out. And that is really a great way to know about lower town specific events, what's coming up for us as a family. And then the third one for Apple or Android, if you have a different version of phone than those, I am sorry. I don't know if they exist. But if you do, you don't have a QR code. But you can search for the HopeCC app and download it from the App Store. And the, that app is actually going to be great for getting small group resources and other church-wide events, as well as signing up for our local events. So you can find that all there. All right. Did I really just call my teacher mom? Did anybody ever do this growing up? Uh, we do, Okay, great. Uh, we So <laughs> it wouldn't be Hope uh, Community Church if we didn't show low-quality memes in nearly every sermon. And so this is, uh, this is, did I really just call my teacher mom? And I put this up there because I, I was thinking about memories, that, like you remember something from when you were a kid that you said or did that just embarrasses you, like it just, it's something like this of calling your teacher mom. If I would have done this, it would have been, uh, either probably Miss Van Lee Shout was my kindergarten teacher, or maybe Miss Gajewski, first grade. I feel like after first grade, maybe less likely to to do to make this error. Um, but but I or, or maybe you uh, the classic other one is a waiter drops off your food and says enjoy your food, and you say you too. And that's a that's a, from a stand-up comedian. I, I can't take credit for that. But or the other the worst one, Facebook. If you're on Facebook. Facebook has a thing called On This Day, and they'll show you memories of posts that you made years ago. And mine are, mine are rough, guys. I, but I have one from 2014. I was changing jobs. Um, I was yet to follow Jesus. And I, I, re- I, wrote, I literally wrote it down because it was so ridiculous. But I wrote, I'm changing jobs. Life is about action. As if it was like some profound insight that I tapped into <laughs> in my mid-20s, um, but that we all have a little bit of baggage. We have memories, and, and some of the baggage that we carry, actually, though, when we reflect on it, it moves us beyond embarrassment, actually, to shame. And we're going to be looking at uh, an incident in Israel's past um, as we reflect on Israel and who they were, they were in relation to God. We'll see different things about us and our baggage and the things that we feel ashamed about And in that, we're going to see God's heart to restore people. That's the good news today, is God's 
heart is to restore people. And so that's the name of the message today, God's very heart. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 2, 14 through 20. Words are going to be on the screen, but you also have that handout if you want to dive deeper. Um, before we get into that, though, we'll get a little context. And this is the first context, which is the start of the book. Hosea 1-2, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So this is our framing verse for the book of Hosea. Why is this book written? Why is Hosea asked to do this? And it's because of this idea of prophetic speech act, or Brian called it uh, prophetic performance art. kind of means the same thing. And all that is, is in the Old Testament, you have these prophets. God in uh, the book of Exodus enters into a covenant with the Israelites. And it says, live this way, don't live that way. And the people start to live, and they start to live in ways out of line with the covenant they made with God. And so one of the things God does is send the prophets to speak as his voice to the people and say, here's the agreement we made. You're not living in line with it. I would love to see you live in line with it. Here's what that would look like. Here's the judgment if you don't live in line with it. But here's the glorious future that comes from knowing me. And oftentimes then that glorious future is something God's going to do, not the people. And so in this case, God then is going to work through this prophet Hosea to do this prophetic speech act. He's going to say, as I am with Israel, so you are going to be with this unfaithful wife. He's going to demonstrate how Israel was spiritually unfaithful. And so we have this from the uh, medieval era, Hosea seeking Gomer. And again, Hosea and Gomer is going to be reflective in a tangible way of God's relationship with Israel. And so God's going to be faithful when Israel's unfaithful in the way that Homer, Hosea is faithful when Gomer is not Hosea's heart, something, the things we see in Hosea's heart are going to be reflected in God's heart, and God's heart reflected in Hosea's. And then uh, we saw last week, Gomer's idolatry and unfaithfulness is representative of Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness. And Brian showed us so beautifully how we all are in that same boat of unfaithfulness. And so that was last week. And, and then we concluded last week with this verse. God had kind of done these two therefores of judgment. He said, therefore, and pronounced the word of judgment. And this was the end of our passage. Last week, Hosea 2.13 said, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals, these false gods of another nation. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. But me, God says, Israel for God. And so we've had these two therefores from God. It looks like he's moving toward divorce in a legal proceeding, as it were, on this covenant. And that sets up our passage for today. So starting in verse 14, it says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down 
in safety. I will betroth you to me in right forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So that's our passage for this week. If you go to the handout, this is a picture representing the bottom of the handout. If you didn't get a handout, I'm sorry, we'll make more copies next time. Um, This is uh, from a book called Grasping God's Word, and it's really helpful in particular for interpreting Old Testament passages, but also New Testament. And so there's three numbers you see on the screen, one, two, three, four, five, that represent five principles or or ways of approaching reading the Bible. This book is by... uh, a guy's name, the first guy's name is J. Scott Duval, and the second guy's name is J. Daniel Hayes. I'm like, what a cool, I need to put J. in front of my name, J. Paul Stiver. Then I'll sound maybe cooler as a theologian. Um, but, they, but they help us understand, and, and so they, we have these five principles. And the first one, if we go back to the picture, was grasp the text in their town. What did it mean to the original hearers? Secondly, then, we gauge the width of the river. What's the difference between them and us? Third, we look at principalizing bridge. What are the timeless theological truths that we carry into for then consulting the biblical roadmap? And I would add for number four, one thing we always try to do here at Hope Lower Town is get to Jesus. So not just the biblical roadmap of how the whole Bible talks about this, but how does Jesus really focus this issue? And then five is grasping the text in our town. What does this mean for us Today And so that's kind of the interpretive journey, and we're just going to go through that as our outline today. So the first one is, grasp the text in their town. And we're going to just look at that passage and, and kind of unpack a few things about it, what it would have meant to Israel at the time. And so going back again, it says, Therefore I am now going to, to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. So right here in this, one of the things I have to point out before we get going, God in our last week's passage was not pretty. God just pronounced words of judgment on his beloved People And actually, when you turn the corner to verse 14, the thing you expect him to say is, here's the signature, here comes the final word of judgment. And instead, he says, I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to speak tenderly to Israel. We see other language of alluring. Intimate language of, of courtship. This idea that God is going to allure, is going to speak tenderly, is going to court Israel back to him. Secondly, we see a couple of phrases that would stand out for the Israelites of, I'm going to lead her into the wilderness. I'm going to, she's going to respond as in the days when she came up out of Egypt. There's this language reflective of Israel's history. And when they had first entered into covenant with the Lord and everything was fresh and they were following him before they turn to idolatry and false gods and disobedience. So God's saying, I'm going to call her back to me. And then the last thing we see is a little bit of reversal and renewal. First in verse 15, God says, I will give her back her vineyards. Previously, last week's passage, God said, I'm going to take away the fig tree and the vine. I'm going to deprive her for a while so that she would return to me and then I'll give her back vineyards. But then this This passage, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, 
But God is going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There's going to be a reversal and a renewal that we can't believe. And that would have been shocking to Israel at the time. All right, continuing on, it says, In that day you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. So God's promising a day to come when they'll no longer call him my master. And actually the word translated there could mean my Baal, that Israel has gone into such idolatry that they're referring to their covenant God as the name of a false God. The God of the uh, Canaanites, Phoenicians, this Baal. So they've replaced God and he says, I'm gonna do a reversal on that. You're not gonna call me that. In fact, verse 17 says, you're gonna have that name be removed. You're going to go from calling on me with a false name to actually forgetting the Baals entirely. You're going to forget your idols and false gods. Such is going to be this restoration. And then verse 18, we see this, um, some of the curses that the people had endured because of their sin. God is saying, I'm going to reverse those. You're going to have peace with the creation and peace with one another. And then we conclude with this. 19 and 20, it says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. So in this time, this betrothal was equal or actually probably superior to engagement as we'll see. Uh, but it was also, there was a bride price that was paid. A bride price was paid to the father in order to, to, to marry this bride, have the right to marry this bride. And God's saying, I'm going to betroth you to me. And he uses this language of forever. He's doing a new thing. He's reversing this in verse 20, verse 19 and 20. We're seeing a, a different kind of being decked out. If verse 13 from last week said she decked herself out with jewels and gold of false idols, God's saying, here's how she's going to be decked out now. Here's how my people are going to be decked out with righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. And then lastly, we see you will acknowledge the Lord. This kind of new covenant this, that's being talked about, this language acknowledge is similar to what Jeremiah says when he's talking about a new covenant, a new relationship with God. But it also is reminiscent of marital intimacy. We're going to know one another. That closely, God is saying, you will know the Lord. The Africa Bible Commentary says this to summarize this passage. The climax of this section is the complete renewal of the covenant relationship as the Lord affirms. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Verse 220. In Hosea's day, a betrothal ceremony was far more binding than a mere engagement today. It was the first step in marriage. Thus, God is not simply taking back an errant wife. He is starting the marriage all over again. His betrothal gifts to his beloved include righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. These characteristics will define their new relationship. But we take it back to Hosea and Gomer. There's been unfaithfulness. There's been sin and shame. And God's saying, this Israel has done the same to me, but I am going to deal with their shame. I am going to cover their sin. I am going to redeem their past. 
I'm going to remove the idols. I'm going to bring a total newness in this relationship. So we take that and we go then now to gauge the width of the river. What is different about the culture? What is different about the language, the time, and the situation from then to now? One thing we can see that, that Israel was a covenant people. They were communal. Our society, our current climate, and our culture is very individualistic. We think about ourselves as the unit of society, the building block of society, not the family or the clan or the tribe or different ways of structuring society. We think of the individual as the center of society. Language, obviously, the Hebrew language, and we're reading this in English translation. At the time, God's people were in flux. And in our own way, we have, we're, different, we're in flux in different ways now. And then at the time, their situation, uh, Israel was the kingdom in the north and Judah in the south, but those two kingdoms that were meant to be one were divided because of idolatry. And in the same way, at times, we see division and idolatry in our church and in our lives. But there's one more way we can gauge the width of the river. This is a picture of the Valley of Acor. And I gotta be honest, if, you're, if you were a Sunday school teacher, I don't think this would make the curriculum, but we got to talk about it because of what God's going to do when he says he's going to make this a door of hope. So let's talk about the Valley of Achor. For the sake of time, I'm not putting the passage on the screen. If you want to read it later, it's Joshua chapter 7. In the context, Israel, Moses has died. Joshua is now leading Israel to conquest in the promised land. And so they're gaining military victories, evicting people from the land God had promised them. And actually their military victories, God mentions, are the ways he's judging those nations for their sin. But Israel's coming into the promised land, so they're doing a lot of military battles and scouting. And, and in Joshua 7, they have a complete military failure. The people are getting routed in defeat. And Joshua breaks down, God, what is happening? But what we saw earlier in the chapter is Achan had saw some precious things from Babylonia and he held them back to himself. And in fact, Achan, when he's mentioned, he's mentioned first under the people of Israel, then he's mentioned under his tribe, then he's mentioned under his family, and then he as an individual is mentioned. He's not the center of the story. His actions impact everyone. He kept this devoted thing, and God is holding all of Israel accountable for his idolatry and sin as he hides it back. So they have a tribunal because Israel is losing in these military battles and being routed in these ways. God says, I'm going to have a tribunal, and you are going to call people out. And finally, Achan comes forward, and he confesses his hiding of this Babylonian, these precious things that were devoted to destruction, and he's confessing. And God asks the people of Israel to judge him. And they covenantally come together and they judge him. He's stoned and burned. And they heap a pile of stones upon him so that they remember this sin. That's why it's called a valley. This is a low point. A moment in Israel's history that would have been shameful to hear about. Don't bring that up. Don't mention that valley. Because holy people there were made impure by idolatry. God does this before they get into the promised land to try and keep them pure because he knows what's going to happen if they go away after false gods. God takes idolatry seriously. Achan's idolatry poisoned the covenant people. 
But we might hear this passage and, and start to question, wait, how could God do that? What are, what's, how's that just? How's that fair that he would just have Achan judged in such a way? And now this doesn't directly talk about it, and I won't be able to address all of those questions right now, but I want to quote Jackie Hill Perry because she's going to tell us something that can help us frame the way we think about this passage. She says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? She starts with a right view of God's holiness. And I think when she says these things, granted, it's not necessarily about Hosea. We think, God, did God, was God wrong for punishing Achan in that way? But if God can't sin, then he can't sin against Achan, that his righteousness is, his justice is just. It's actually trustworthy. It's a reliable measure. So Jackie Hilperi helps us not to judge God's handling of Achan's sin, but rather see God's response to Achan's sin as just, in keeping with his heart to bless his people and actually keep them from evil. But that's all we can say about that now. We're going to continue on and go back to this passage. Because in Hosea's time, it isn't just one person who's gone after idolatry. It's everyone. They're worshiping false gods. Idolatry is in full swing. And when that happens, we think judgment's coming. And again, God says, I'm going to speak tenderly. I'm going to court. I'm going to renew. I'm going to restore. I'm going to bring hope. What we see there then is God's grace. A reversal of expectations. We expect judgment, and instead he's promising blessing. And who's going to do it? He is. God's grace is not dependent on the unfaithfulness of the people, but on his own goodness. So he doesn't sign that, those divorce papers, but instead promises something new, something that he is going to do. And so we continue on now. We take and cross the principalizing bridge. We're looking for timeless theological principles that help us span the river of cultural differences and historical differences that we have with the Israelites in this time and in Hosea's day. And, and I think three we can pull out are these. First, God's gentleness. Second, God's faithfulness and love. And three, God's heart to restore. And we're actually going to look for these themes. We're going to look to confirm or elaborate on these themes as we consult now the biblical roadmap, the fourth step in the, in the journey of interpreting. So we're going to take those timeless truths and look for those themes. And then we're going to see and particularly get to Jesus and see how that brings clarity. And so four more things we could consider when we consult the biblical roadmap. One, God brings restoration and reversals. Two, Idols are removed and forgotten. Three people will know God. And then the fourth one, we're going to see a bride bought, as it were, betrothed and clothed. And so we're going to consult the biblical roadmap by looking at different passages from the New Testament, starting here in John chapter 11 with the ultimate prophetic speech act. So for context in John chapter 11, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead and the teachers of the law and the religious rulers are saying, we got to do something about this guy or all the people are going to go after him. So now they begin to conspire to kill him. 
And in that conspiracy, we see this, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. So we see this conspiracy to kill Jesus, that one man should die for the sake of the people. And it kind of refers us back to Achan, one man dying to spare the people. Only in Achan's story, Achan was guilty of sin. The difference with Jesus is Jesus is sinless. And it's interesting that Caiaphas is going to prophesy and actually say, do you realize it's better that one man die for the sake of the people? This is the ultimate prophetic speech act. This is the ultimate prophet, Jesus, representing who God is. Because Jesus is going to go and die for the sake of the people on the cross. The moment of the cross is when God is most fully revealing our relationship with him, needed a savior, needed a mediator, and he sent his son to be that mediator. That the cross is actually a new valley of Achor that opens a true door of hope. My sin is dealt with. The remarkable thing is that it's Jesus, the true covenant keeper, the one who was faithful to God, who is going to die for all of us covenant breakers so that we might be brought into God's family. That's reversal and renewal. So the story isn't fully written in Achan. We see it now here that Jesus is going to be that one man who dies for the sake of the people. In that, we're seeing God's very heart to restore. His plan to restore includes giving his son for our sins. Secondly, we're going to see idols removed and forgotten. This is uh, from the book of Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. It's a New Testament church, pretty similar to us now, on this side of the cross, the good news being proclaimed. And it says this, as the Apostle Paul writes to this church that he started, it says, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The river, as it were, that we have to cross for this passage is much more narrow. We're a New Testament church just like them. We're founded on the promises of God in the gospel. We're on this side of the cross. And how is that church described? You turned to God from idols, false gods, to serve the living and true God. That's the way we're described. Oh, Lord, we are people who have put our faith in Jesus and turned to God from idols. Third, people will know God. This is just the easiest one. Jesus literally says it. 
is he's praying the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, now this is eternal life. He's praying to God the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. There's something about now this turning from idols to the true God that is eternal life. And that knowledge comes to us in Jesus, that Jesus is bringing restoration. God is making his plan for restoration most clearly known in Jesus. And then lastly, a bride bought, betrothed, and clothed. And Hosea, it is the Israelites and God's promising this future. And John tells us it's also gonna be the other scattered children of God, non-Israelite people like us who call upon Jesus. But in Ephesians 5, it says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy by cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Never have we been spoken to more tenderly by God than in the person of his son. And his words of grace, the words of grace that come in the gospel, cleanse us as if washing of water through the word so that Jesus presents us to himself as radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. These words of grace cleanse us of our sin and our shame and our pasts. We're restored, we're healed, we're radiant, we're clothed in Christ. So then we get to the fifth step in our interpretive journey of grasping the text in our town. How should we live in light of these truths? And, and so up on the screen is the book, Gentle and Lowly. We've got copies in the back. Do not be a Minnesotan, take a copy. We got way too many take one. Everyone, we'd love you to take one. All right, I got some love for the Minnesotan joke. Because we're, so Minnesotans were like, oh, I'll leave one for someone else. Just take a book. We've got them. Um, all right, and, but here we go. And, and, and the reason why we got this book is a free giveaway. But when we get to Jesus, we see most clearly God's heart, his gentleness when he deals with us, that he doesn't deal with us according to our sin but he deals with us in grace because he sends his son to pay the penalty for our sins. So we actually get to now, because we've been brought into God's family, we get to know his very heart, our father's very heart of delight in us. And this book will help us do that. Ways we can read that book, you might do it in, in a small group or we could even create some book studies around it. Um, so if you're interested in starting a book study around it, we could do that. It's also a great book to read devotionally and just go chapter by chapter, even section by section, as this book will help us better understand God's very heart. Um, to go back to this image, as we consider those themes again and, and, and try and look at those timeless theological proofs, truths in Christ, we see most clearly God's faithfulness. Because Jesus is the true Hosea. He's the one who comes and does everything it takes to win us back by dying on a cross. One excerpt from Gentle and Lowly here. Um, author says this, and what did he do 
Jesus, when he saw the unclean, what was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. We can all testify to the humaneness of touch. A warm hug does something words, warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there is something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. In Christ, we see most clearly God's heart to restore. And the way that he's going to do that is by grace. Undeserved blessing. Jesus shows us that heart and that he's touching unclean sinners like you and me, people with a past. And when he touches us, he doesn't become unclean with our sin. He cleanses us. Which means there's no one God can't restore. And I want to dwell on that restoration theme for a second. We just went through an activity with our small group leaders where we um, put a, a post-it notes on the wall. And one of the categories that we wrote post-it answers for was, in this last season, these last 20 months or so, what are, what are three laments? What are things that you're grieving? What are things that have wounded and hurt you? And by far the most laments that we saw as a theme was around relationships. We were grieving lost relationships, changed relationships. To be fair, to be encouraging as well, one of the greatest wins when we answered that question was new relationships and deeper relationships. But our lament, what we're hurting from, is in the season of the last 20 months or so, we've had broken relationships, things have come out, we've been hurt, we've been wounded, we've pushed away from people. So we're facing that. On uh, Monday night, we had an elder meeting, and Josh and Brian and I were pondering the question, what do we need, what can we do to serve and shepherd our people in this time? And the word, the answer that came up was community. That if we're, our greatest lament right now is change in broken relationships, the thing that's going to help us heal is being in community with one another. We, uh, uh, Ben and Emily and Allison and myself, got to do a, uh, a thing yesterday. Our North End neighborhood where we live had a, a festival, Marydale Park. And uh, we went, we volunteered <clears throat> to, to help us set up. And there was booths for, for games and merchants. And uh, there was even like a local beer station. And there was food trucks and kids activities. It was really cool. And we helped with the setup on it. And, but as we were driving there, I remarked to Allison... Uh, because we, her and I had had a, one extremely busy week. I remarked to Allison, getting connected to our neighborhood is never going to be convenient. It just never is. It's always going to be inconvenient. But then we went and we did this volunteering and we talked to so many people and met so many different people and, and bought products and enjoyed this festival. And I, even today, am still beaming with North End Neighborhood Pride. In the same way, being in community with one another is not going to be convenient. 
We're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to say and do hurtful things. We're going to have to give up some of our time. Before that small group leader meeting, my heart was convicted because I was so bitter that the meeting was going to take more hours than I wanted it to. And in that, God's actually revealing I have a time idol. He's saying, you think you own your time. You're not asking me, God, how could I honor you with my time? You're saying, my world revolves around me and I am God and I decide what I do. God wants to see restoration even in our body. We're going to be healed. We're going to grow together in community. It's going to take giving up some of our time. And actually, though, the cool thing is when we do this, we're going to develop a little bit of lower town pride, a little bit of community pride within each other. We're going to look each other and be, man, I'm glad I go to church with that person. And just to close here and looking at this bride bought, betrothed, and clothed one more time. This is the good news of the gospel and why God can make things new. Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Wasn't predicated on our faithfulness, but on God's. God is the one that made us holy, that in Christ, God remembers our sins no more. Those things in our past that we're embarrassed and ashamed about, he doesn't even remember. Why? Because when Christ wedded himself to us, he gifted us and clothed us with his righteousness and his faithfulness and his justice and his compassion. So we are adorned, we're decked out with Christ. So as we close here, just ask first, have you been to the cross? That place of renewal is a wilderness. Jesus was crucified outside the town. We have to go to the cross and realize our low point is coming to realize our need for Jesus. And yet that's also the point where we are exalted and clothed in him. Because the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you go from being a sinner to a son and you are covered in him. We go from being ashamed to a clothed bride. But we have to get to that low point. We have to see our need and we have to call on him. We've got to go to him in the wilderness and meet him. So have you been to the cross? And secondly then, will you let God restore you and us? The only thing holding us back from experiencing God's restoration is us. He's shown us in Christ his very heart to restore. So let's pursue that in community and loving one another and being willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of community because God has something for us in that. He has restoration, healing, and a joy that we've yet to experience to the level he's going to call us to. We're going to move to a time of communion now and remember this husband, Christ, who died for us, his bride. And in doing so, instituted the new covenant in his blood, the body representing his body broken for us, the blood representing his blood shed for us. If you didn't get a chance to grab a communion cup, they're in the, the back there. And at Hope, we practice what we call open communion. We don't ask that you'd be a member of this church or even any church. We just ask that you would be, say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I believe this gospel. I've been to the cross and put my faith in him. We'd love to have you take communion with us.
and remember the sacrifice that he's made and that he's done in order to restore us. I'm gonna close in prayer, invite the worship team up and we'll continue on through communion and song to worship God. Dear God, we just thank you so much that your very heart, uh, as the author of Gentle and Lowly says, the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning is your desire to heal, to restore, to welcome sinners into your presence and to restore us together as a body. Those things are what excite you. And so we praise you for that because not only is that your heart, but it's your actions. You've shown us that by sending your son to die on a cross in our place and by now giving us your spirit that we might know you intimately as we await eternal life. God, we praise you for all you've done for us. We ask that you would work mightily in our church. Bring us into deep intimacy and communion with one another so that we might better follow and glorify you. God, be worshiped and glorified now in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.